Justin Clement uh, just leaned over in my ear and said, preach as though this is your last sermon. So if you were hoping the last one was my last one, uh, you've got at least one more. Um, now we read, or, or you know that we've been going through uh, the Psalms the last several weeks, the Psalms, uh, selected Psalms from uh, Book 1, that's one, 1 through 41, and today we're going to be looking at Psalm 16. Um, our confession of faith was finalized, or at least the, the form we read finalized sometime around the 7th century, and our confession of sin was written sometime in the 16th century. Well, you, you, maybe you know this intuitively, but it's good to be reminded. These psalms that we're reading were written about 3,000 years ago, and they've been sung and repeated by the church over and over again since then. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, uh, you can turn roughly to the middle uh, and find Psalm 16. And if you don't, we've got it printed for you here uh, in the bulletin. Um, please read along with me. Give your attention uh, to God's Word. Psalm 16. A miktam of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word together this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts, God, that you would change us with your word today by the power of your spirit. God, grant us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, by your spirit, put words of life in my mouth today and enable me to feed your people with Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, Just in the past uh, several weeks, uh, I've started watching the the HBO TV series Band of Brothers. I think I may be uh, one of the last people, but I've never never actually seen it before and started it uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, If I'm not the last person, uh, Band of Brothers is, is a... It was about a group of soldiers uh, in World War II. It's a group of paratroopers. The video series follows them all the way from their training uh, in Tocoa, Georgia, actually, all the way through uh, the end of the war. 
And just maybe, maybe 10 days ago, I was watching an episode called Carrington, or Carrington, it's the third episode, and it really focuses in on this one character uh, named Blythe. Uh, if you've seen it before, you know Blythe is having a difficult time uh, being a soldier. He's struggling uh, with the events that he sees going on around him. He's struggling with what, what he's been a part of. And in this particular episode, after, after they take the city of Carrington, uh, Blythe has been so shaken by the whole event that he's actually struck with blindness. For about a 24-hour period, the show calls it hysterical blindness. I don't know if that's a real thing, um, but it seems pretty real. He couldn't, anyway, he couldn't see for a whole day. He was so shaken. He, he regains his sight, and of course the war goes on. And in the next battle that you see him in, uh, Easy Company, that's, that's the group he's a part of, is, is under attack. They're being overwhelmed uh, by the German army. They, it appears that they're, they're losing this battle. And we see Blythe laying down in a hole. He's shaking again. And this time he's screaming. Uh, he's, actually, he's actually sobbing. And he's, been, he's totally overcome uh, with fear at this point. And his lieutenant, Lieutenant Winters, sees him, comes and jumps down in the hole with him uh, to encourage him. He tells him to get up and fight. And then he stands up and he begins to fight. And Blythe, rather, rather than responding to the orders, what happens is he, when he sees Winters stand up in the line of fire, willing to jump in the fight and take aim, it gives him the confidence that he needs to jump in the fight with him. When he sees him stand up, he stands up alongside him. Now they're both firing at the enemy. And a few moments later, the U.S. tanks come up over the hill, and you can see that now they're going to win. <clears throat> uh, and that's, that's really when the battle turns. The whole, the whole company, their whole mindset all changes when they see the tanks come over the hill. Now, most of you, maybe some of you, but most of you probably haven't faced uh, a situation exactly like that with tanks coming at you and bullets flying at you. But if you live in this world, uh, you live in a world of trouble. You have faced or you will face some kind, some kind of tank. Um, so the question for us this morning is where, where do you turn? Where will you turn when the threat comes? Will, will you bury your hopes and the acceptance of others, or in your children's future, where, where will you turn? In our psalm this morning, David is in some fairly difficult circumstances. Um, you notice it's called a miktam, and if you're not sure what that is, don't worry, uh, nobody really knows what a miktam is, apparently. Um, but there are, there are five other psalms that are called miktoms. It's Psalms 56 through 60. Each one of them has this same title. In three of them, we're told specifically that David is running away from either Saul or Saul's men. He's being chased by the king of Israel. And in two others, even though Saul is not mentioned, it's very clear that he's facing some kind of threat from some kind of enemy. And that theme certainly fits our psalm here uh, and as verse 10 shows us, it looks like at a, at a minimum, David is afraid that he might die. This same David, uh, who in Psalm 12 says, how long, O Lord, how long, really is turning, um, 
turning into a man who brims uh, with joy and confidence. This psalm gives us the end of David's response to these threats. So the question is, well, what happened? Psalm 16 teaches us this morning that in the midst of any circumstances, you can have assurance of God's abundant provision. In any circumstance, you can have assurance of God's abundant provision. And we'll see this uh, in three ways this morning. There's three ways that we experience this provision. They come in your commitment to God, your contentment in Him, and lastly, your confidence in who He is. So first, your commitment. We see that in a time of need, the first thing David does is he confesses his faith. Look again at verse 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. We have a very short prayer, two words, that turns quickly into confession. Three times he says, you're all that I have. And you, I take, you are my refuge. You are my God. There is no good apart from you. This is the same David that killed lions and killed bears and killed Goliath all by about the age of 15. When you commit yourself to God, it entails that you're not trusting in yourself. David was letting go of all his own strength, declaring that God was his only good. And we see also that this commitment to God includes, it includes a commitment to his people. He takes pleasure in the people of God. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. This is David, by the way, who's being chased uh, by the king of the people that he's talking about. He's not, he's not saying that God's people are always lovable But what he's doing is he's committing themselves to them because they're gods. Because these people are God's possession. It's literally here, they are the the saints, they're set apart ones. They've been set apart by God. He's committing himself to them as well. This This is a mark of Christianity, that you would commit yourself to the people of God. Uh, Three of Paul's letters in the New Testament have Something like the phrase, I have heard of your faith in Jesus and your love toward the saints. We see that these things go together, that you cannot have the head of the church without the body. You can't have the head without the body. We also see that this commitment to God excludes certain things. David says that he will not run after another God. This is quite simply, this is idolatry running after any other thing that is not the God, that's not David's God, that's not Yahweh, is idolatry. And he doesn't leave us any room for a third position. There's no neutral position of some okay thing to run after. And he gives us some reasons. He says, your sorrows will multiply. You see, running after other things only adds to the pain of this world. When you seek security, when you seek When you seek what only God can give in something other than God, at best, you're going to be disappointed. And David says he will not participate. He won't even mention them. 
So what we learn here is that in our commitment to God, we are both to love the things that God loves, that is himself and his people, and we are to begin to hate the things that God hates, namely our sin. So I'll just ask you, do you delight in the people of God? Did you drag yourself uh, into church this morning? Or are you pleased to be here and pleased to teach your children to love God's people? We also see that there is no place for a kind of pluralism uh, in Christianity. We're not to even give apparent consent to the ways of the world. Um, I think sometimes we, we, we think that we're cozying up with the world in order to win them, and we don't, maybe you don't realize that, that you're the one who's being won. Um, in all our interactions with the world, there's, there's a wisdom and a carefulness that needs to take place so that we will not run after another. As David commits himself to God, he begins to experience God's provision, and we see that it grows into contentment. We see that God is enough for David. In verse 5, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And there's actually there's a little bit of wordplay going on here with portion and cup in verse 5 and drink and lips back in verse 4. What David is saying is that, God, you are my food and drink. You are my very sustenance. I will take you in over and over again. He's able to look beyond his circumstances because of what he has in God. His pleasure in who God is actually defines his circumstances. It's not that, it's not that he ignores the things that are going on around him, but he begins to see that all those things are from God, the same God who feeds him. So that all he has, he can look around and say that it's beautiful. Like the hymn that we sing, Whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well. There's promised land kind of language in here. What, what David sees is lot and lines and inheritance as he looks at his circumstances. In 1 Samuel 26... David's on the run again, or he's having another confrontation, rather, with Saul and his men. And Saul's men, actually, they mock David, and they tell him, go and run after other gods. And then they warn him, and you will have no part of God's inheritance. As God divided the land in Numbers 18, there was another group that were told they would not have any part of the land. It was actually... It was actually the Levites, the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. And the reason God gives us that they didn't get any land is because they were promised to have the very presence of God. You see, and David sees here what many Israelites fail to see, what many contemporary Christians fail to see, is that the land was never about real estate. The promise of the land was the promise to live in God's presence. David knows that he has God himself. And it's not that his circumstances become irrelevant, but they get totally redefined by that truth. 
And he begins to, he begins to train himself in contentment. Look at 7 and 8. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David receives God's instruction day and night. The Psalms, you see, the Psalms are all about rehearsal. We tend to think of Psalms as journal entries, and there's an element, there's an element of truth to that here with this psalm. But you see, the Psalms were written down and placed in the Bible so that God's people could read them and sing them together over and over again for 3,000 years, as I mentioned before. Do you think that that would affect you? Would it change you to hear these truths and to drink them in over and over again? That's, that's what we're doing here this morning. That's what we do here each week, over and over. We confess our faith. We confess our sins. And we hear about the goodness of God and His mercy. This actually begins to change David. You see, because God is near... He says he will not be moved. And it's the same, it's the same phrase that we see uh, in the end of Psalm 15. Although there, if you remember, the conditions were slightly different. In Psalm 15, it's the one who does these things that will not be shaken. But here, David will not be shaken because God is at his right hand. Just imagine the things that David had been through up to this point, being chased by his own king. But you see, it's not David's circumstances that have changed. It's David. These truths are shaping him and turning him into a new kind of person. He's not celebrating his situation. He's celebrating the God who dwells with him. So when we look around... At our own circumstances, our temptation will be to evaluate God based on the things we see. But we need to learn to evaluate what we see based on what we know about who God is. To let Him orient us to our situation. I'm sure many of you feel that the lines are not exactly in pleasant places. Uh, Proverbs 16.33 God tells us that the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What David learned is that everything he had was from God. So our challenge is to consider God's hand. Consider not only his control, but that his control is for your good. Psalm 16 is pressing on you this morning to feed on God and not any other thing. And often it's, our, often it's actually our trials that do press us into him. But you don't have to wait for the trial to begin rehearsing. We are to live in the knowledge that God is near, even when he seems far. So God's provision is made real to us as we commit ourselves to him. And as we begin to find our contentment in him, and lastly, we see that this leads David into the very heights of confidence with God. 
He bursts into praise in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Literally here, it's, uh, his, he shout, his whole being shouts ecstatically. And this is not, uh, as Justin mentioned earlier this morning, this is not just some emotional high. This is actually his realistic appraisal of what it means to dwell with God. It's to shout ecstatically. You see here also that it's, it's his heart, his whole being, and his flesh. This is not, it's not merely a spiritual exercise or not merely an idea exercise. The physical is very important here. Uh, this is why we stand up and we sit down and we hold our hands up in the benediction and we come and eat real bread and drink real wine every week because God doesn't just care about the things that we think but it's the physical things that we actually participate in, these rituals that we develop that begin to change us together. See, David is confident, even in the very face of death, directly related to back to his, his short prayer in verse 1, preserve me. 9 and 10 tell us, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One See corruption. Uh, Sheol here, uh, the idea here is that it's the place of death, and its parallel here is corruption or decay. He's talking about his body decaying, being eaten by worms. Um, But the thing is, David, uh, you know, he will die. He did die. Um, It is the ultimate uh, circumstance, if you will. Genesis 3.19 tells us that we will all return to the dust. And um, not to put too fine a point on it, but each of you in this room will return to the dust. So what is David saying here? Why is he confident in spite of his pending death? Well, Acts 2 and Acts 13, we actually get some commentary on this very psalm in the New Testament. In Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, um, he quotes from this psalm. And right after his quote, he said, if you want to turn there, it's 2, 29 to 32. Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This God, excuse me, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And then again, commenting on the same psalm, we find Paul in his first sermon in Acts 13. He says, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You see, Jesus is the faithful one. Jesus is God's holy one in verse 10. And what we see here is that David knew it. If you look back, all the personal pronouns 
in this psalm except for one say my or me. And then in verse 10, he says, your holy one. He's not talking about himself here. He's making a direct link to the Messiah that would come and be raised again from the dead. He's the one who does these things in the end of Psalm 15. And what we learn from Paul is that because of Christ's resurrection, you are freed from all things. You see, David identifies himself with Christ so that it's good news to him that someone else will be raised because he knows that's the promise of his own resurrection, his own eternal participation in the presence of God. He has eternal life and he has freedom because Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath and defeated death. David and you and I can enjoy the cup of God's eternal blessing. So David does not even fear death and it's not because he won't die but it's because he knows that death will not get the last word. The Messiah is the last word. In John 16, Jesus says, You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And David tells us that this is the path of life. In the resurrection, we have a resurrection life. You see, death to self Death to sin, death to running after all other gods, when we put all our trust and confidence in the God that raises us from the dead. And notice, it's not the path to life. It's not the path of toward one day having some life, but it's the path of life now. My wife's grandmother has a funny saying. She likes to say, well, one day, this will be a long time ago. Um... And maybe there's some truth to that. It's not all bad to not dwell in the misery of your circumstances and to to look forward and hope that one day we will not dwell in this world. But what David tells us is that it's now. The presence of God is not merely a destination, but we have it right now at our right hand. Proverbs 4.18 says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, It shines brighter and brighter until the full day. You see, we grow in our experience of God's presence beginning now until the day when we see him face to face. We don't have to wait it out. Our life here on earth is not one of just waiting for the world to end so that one day we don't have to worry about all these things. We have God's presence and fullness of joy. We worship a God who's not a prude, He's the God who laughs and overflows with joy that spills out to us. God's overflowing and abundant provision for you is found as you commit yourself to him. As you find your contentment in him and as you place all your confidence in him alone. In another scene from that same episode, A Band of Brothers, our same character, Blythe, Um, it's after a battle where he's in a ditch in another battle, not fighting. Uh, And another character comes over to him and says, Blythe, we're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. But you see, we have something greater. 
We don't have to merely consider ourselves dead, but with Paul in Colossians 3, we are people who have already been raised from the dead. We're already seated with Christ. Consider that Christ has won eternity for you. Eternity in the unfiltered presence of God, and He gives it to you now. Place all your trust in Jesus Christ alone, and you're free from the law of Moses, free from the weight of trying to create something that you can hope in from hoping in yourself or others or in your performance. And we're free to acknowledge that we bring nothing to God's table. In our shorter catechism, question 38, it asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. So come, drink from a cup that never runs dry, receive blessing from His hand forever. You, if you are in Christ, are an heir to the resurrection inheritance. Let's pray.